Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. We're in a series called Ordinary People, Extraordinary Faith. And we're looking at some unlikely heroes uh, who were used by God, even though they didn't necessarily have all of the outward qualifications that we would think of for heroism. And these aren't perfect people. These aren't people who, you know, come from another planet. They don't wear capes. They don't have like a great head of hair and a bunch of muscles and like act for truth, justice in the American way or anything like that. These are just normal folks. Many of these folks, in fact, have a a pretty serious personal weakness that makes them very human in a way that many of us can relate to. But they all have one thing in common. These are, are men and women who they trusted God enough to take a leap of faith. Last week, we kicked things off by looking at the story of Gideon. He's a young farmer from about 1200 BC, called by God to lead his fellow Israelites into battle against the invading Midianites, which was sort of their arch enemy next door. But as we saw last week, Gideon had a whole load of questions. He's got some some doubts, some skepticism, and he asks God to show him several miraculous signs. There's a sign with some food that burns up, and then he asks for a sign with a piece of wool being wet, and then don't make the wool wet. Got to ask all these signs before he's really convinced this is God telling him what to do and not just some, you know, delusional voices in your head. Have you ever had a good idea and you're like, I don't know if this is God or if this is the pizza from last night, because that sounds a little crazy. Finally, Gideon believes this is God telling him what to do, and so we're going to continue his story today, part two of his story. Before we jump into the main event, which is the battle itself, I want to go back for just a few minutes and unpack a question that people have asked me about concerning knowing his, his will and hearing God's voice. If you've been in church world for very, very long in your life, th- there might be a bit of a Christianese that you've heard spoken. We kind of have our own little language here sometimes, and we, we throw these little terms out sometimes. It's become, this term has become a sort of cliche when we're discussing knowing God's will, and that term is opening or closing doors. Anybody heard this? Anybody use this? Right? We talk about God opening a door, God closing a door. I confess I've used this myself. Talk about God. I, I've prayed the same thing. God, just open up a door so that we'll know what your will is, what the next right step is, or, or do I close this door so we'll know that that wasn't your will. Um, and the assumption being, if he opens a door, that he's showing us the choice that he wants us to make. And if God closes a door, well, that's something that God didn't want you to do. It's a wonderful way of talking within Christian circles. It just actually has nothing to do with what's said in the Bible. I have to confess this. And, and I realized this one day, and I realized my own mistakes in this. Opening and closing doors, it's It's just never mentioned, except for maybe a couple of times. In both cases, it's in the New Testament, and it almost seems as though the opposite happens. In an open door, when it's referred to, whenever it's talked about in the New Testament, it's always referred to as an opportunity for evangelism. An opportunity for evangelism. For a, A door opens, it's the opportunity to go and tell people about the gospel. It's never referring, in Scripture, to personal decision making about my life or my interests. Rather, it's, it's a, here's an opportunity that's opened up to serve other people. And what's interesting is it's always presented just as that, an opportunity, but not a command from God. I want to show you a couple of examples. This is just like the preamble to the real sermon, so just hang, hang loose here, but I think this is going to set a couple of people free. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there's one point uh, where Paul says, 
uh, God opened a door for me to go to a certain place. Yeah, but I decided not to. And I went somewhere else. And apparently that's fine. Uh, he can make that choice. For Paul, the open door was an opportunity, but it wasn't like a magical way of divining the will of God that you then must follow. For him, it was just, no, here, here's an opportunity, but there was another opportunity, so I went there instead. There's another really interesting, there's a, a wonderful case in Acts chapter 21 where a prophet, Agabus, comes to Paul. Paul was planning on going to Jerusalem to share the gospel, but Agabus presents to him what we would think of as kind of a closed door. He, he tells him, oh, Paul, the Lord has told me that if you go to Jerusalem, you'll be arrested and thrown in jail, right? I would say that's a closed door. Thank you for the warning. We'll make other plans. Paul says, great, thanks for the warning. I'm off to Jerusalem. That's Paul. And he goes, and he gets arrested and thrown in jail. And Paul's like, perfect, everything's going according to plan. Uh, so sometimes we have to be careful because we can be addicted to sort of what's really Christian forms of, of like magic. And how can I interpret the signs? You know, how, how do I read the smoke? How do, you know, throw the bones in the plate and see where they land or something like this? And how do I figure out, I want to know what God wants me to do. And we're going to talk about this a little more towards the end of this message. But in order for, for, for us to mature in, in Christ, the truth is that God has made you in his image. He's made you in his image. And as an image bearer of God, if you then come back to him and say, Lord, teach me how to walk in your ways. Teach me your heart, how, how to have your heart. Then God's delight is seeing you mature so that you start making your own wise decisions that reflect his heart. Make your own decisions that reflect his heart. See, that's what we see is the pattern of decision-making throughout the Bible. Although there are exceptions, and certainly Gideon is, is one of them here, but it's important for us to realize, important for us to remember, that as Christ followers, we have something, and remember this throughout these stories, especially these Old Testament stories, we have something that Gideon did not. That is the Holy Spirit living inside us. Amen? We have the Holy Spirit living inside us. And Gideon is a man who is full of fear. He's full of doubt and skepticism. And God graciously accommodates his weaknesses in order for God's plans to shine through, for God's plans to come to pass. But we shouldn't look at, at Gideon's demand for a sign as a prescription for knowing God's true will. We're gonna, like I said, we're going to have a little bit more to say about this toward the end. For now, Let's get to the, the second act in the story, and that is preparing for battle, okay? This is the, if Peter Jackson were directing this, this is when the orcs are amassing at the gate, okay? This is the big, big scene here. Gideon is able to, he's able to, uh, to muster about 32,000 men after God convinces him that this is God's plan. Gideon gets together about 32,000 of his fellow countrymen, but they are vastly outnumbered by the Midianites who have at least a quarter thousand up to 400,000 men. It says that the Midianite army was impossible to count them. There were so many. It describes them as a swarm of locusts, so the odds are already about 10 to 1 here. Uh, in Judges Chapter 7, we're in the book of Judges, chapter 7, verse 2 is, the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into their hands. 
Now, if I'm Gideon, I'm thinking, God misspoke again, or I might have again misunderstood something. God, it sounded like you said I had too many, but I think you meant I have too few. So you're about to do a miracle and bring some more soldiers into my army, right? But the Lord tells Gideon to send home anybody in the army who is afraid. So maybe Gideon's thinking, okay, well, maybe that's not such a bad idea. Okay, we'll get rid of a few, you know, little scaredy cats. They'll probably just get in the way anyway. So we'll, we'll, uh, anybody who's scared can go home. Gideon loses two-thirds of the army. 22,000 soldiers go home. Now the odds are up to 100 to 1. He's at 100 to 1. Gideon's thinking, well, that didn't go according to plan. And God's like, yeah, you're right. You know what? There's still too many men. Still too many. And so God, what he does next is devise this sort of test. And Gideon's army, he says, have them all go down and take a drink of water out of this creek. And, and depending on the way they drink the water, we're going to send some home. It sounds kind of arbitrary. Um, but God tells him, get rid of anybody who laps up the water like a dog. And, and another 9,700 are eliminated and sent home. That's 97% of the little bit that stayed. So the odds are now at a thousand to one, a thousand to one. Gideon is left with an army of 300 people. And I use that term army loosely. That's not an army. That's like a home life group, right? (laughs) And then it gets better than that. This is great. God tells them to attack the Midianites with trumpets and candles. Woo! You got to be kidding me, right? What kind of battle plan is this? They're they're going to overpower the Midianites with like music and aromatherapy or something here. This is a terrible plan. Terrible plan. It turns out the Bible is full of terrible plans. Did you know that? It is. Let's march around Jericho for seven days blowing trumpets. Awesome. What's the worst that could happen, right? That sounds like a plan that can't lose. David goes out to face Goliath with a slingshot. What could go wrong? Right? Terrible plans. So why does God whittle Gideon's little home life group army to, from 32,000 people to 300? The end of verse 2 revealed why God did it that way. He defeats the Midianites with 300 Israelites so that Israel would not boast he says, so Israel won't boast against me that the, that the victory, that her own strength has saved her. Because you know what would have happened. If, Israel, if, if Gideon had attacked with 32,000 men and won, that would have been impressive, right? But not unheard of, right? Napoleon probably could have pulled that off or something, right? I'm pretty sure the Israelites would have thanked God for lending a hand. Thanks, God, you know for helping us out, he would have gotten partial credit. But that's not what God wants or deserves here, is it? God wants and deserves full credit. And when 300 people armed with kazoos and scented candles defeat this army that is impossible to count like the locusts, that is exactly what God's going to get here. He's going to get full credit. I want to tell you something today, guys. If you experience a blessing in your life, a victory in your life, to give the glory to anything other than God is idolatry, right? It's idolatry. We, we are tempted to, to take credit so many times for things that belong to the Lord. 
And when we do that, what we do is we short-circuit what God wants to do through us for other people around us. We have to keep this in mind. Every blessing for you, in God's eyes, is an opportunity to show His greatness to other people around you. You are blessed to be a blessing. Every victory is an opportunity to give praise to God. It's an opportunity for other people to go, wow, your God is great. It's an opportunity that we take away when we receive the credit. Isn't that right? Amen. The, the, the more I live, the, the longer that I, I lead, uh, the more I, I'm convinced that God does what he does, not because of how awesome we are, but in spite of how awesome we aren't, right? This is, this is the God we serve. And sometimes our part is to step out in faith and do that brave thing. But sometimes our part is to get out of the way and let God do what he came to do. Amen. Amen. God loves impossible odds. He loves doing what is humanly impossible. You might be going through something right now that is impossible. You might be facing impossible odds, 10 to 1, and 100 to 1, 1,000 to 1 odds. You might have a bill that cannot get paid, right? Because hours have been cut back because of the coronavirus. You might have a, a, a verdict given to you by a doctor that sounds like impossible odds. And God says, this is, this is why you're created. This is what we're here for, right? And what we have to learn is to trust him, to depend on him, even when things look hopeless, even when it still seems like he hasn't answered our prayer yet. I noticed something. I was thinking about this the other day. How many of our prayers, I, and I, I'm totally, I'm speaking as one of us, as, I'm guilty of this. How many of our prayers revolve around God reducing the odds against us when maybe God wants to do the exact opposite? God, reduce the odds against me when maybe he loves it when the odds are stacked against us. Why? So it is more obvious to us who is our source of victory. So, he is, so we know that he is the God who, who loves us and supplies our need. I believe that. I believe that God loves to show up for his children. So, so Gideon and his 300-person uh, home life group creep out in the middle of the night, it says. And it says they, they go out in the middle of the night and the army, the, the enemy army is way, the thousands of enemy troops, they're down in the valley. Most of them are sleeping. I could just picture like, you know, they're probably, most of them are probably in the tents. There might be a few that are sitting out by the little campfires playing cards, you know, drinking mead, whatever they do in 1200 BC. And, you know, because they're feeling pretty confident that, you know, the, the next morning they're going to get up and go, you know, wipe up Israel. And so pretty soon the rest of the Midianites, they go to sleep and... On his signal, all at once, Gideon's men break their clay jars. They're standing in the hills around the valley. They break the clay jars and blow the ram's horns, these, these shofars that make this cr crazy sound. And now their torches are shown too. And it freaks out the Midianites, right? They wake up and it says they start killing each other. The Midianites do. Have you ever woken up this way, like startled? One time I woke up, I was in a deep sleep, and a car alarm went off. And I jumped out of bed, and I'm like bouncing off things. There was like a Scott-shaped hole in the window of my bedroom just about, uh, you know, bef just before I even was really awake. It was just crazy. And, and I imagine for the Midianites, looking up and seeing all those torches would have freaked them out. 
Because in, in their day, if you were attacking at night, what would usually happen is the lead soldier of a whole battalion would be holding the torch because he doesn't have a sword, so he's kind of a brave guy. Everybody behind him has got the sword, and he's following him. So to see four, what was it, 300, 300 torches, where you're thinking there's 300 battalions, they, there might be a quarter million Israelites surrounding them, plus those crazy shofars blowing all around him. So they are just out of their mind, and it's basically a rout. Even the ones that says that, that were able to escape the valley there, they get chased down by the remaining Israelites, and they're all wiped out. It's a brutal scene, but Israel is saved. The, the, the day is won. And so what happens a few days later, it says that all of the children of Israel say to Gideon, you should be our king. You're a winner. That was a great strategy. And Gideon says, no, I'm not going to be your king. And it, it, it sounds like he's, look, he's being very humble about this. But then he says, I don't want to be king, but I will take your gold. And I'll take a lot of land. And I'm going to marry a bunch of wives. I'm going to have me some concubines as well. It's just, it's fascinating here. He takes what basically happens is Gideon takes all of the blessings of a king and none of the responsibility. And that's how he lives out his life. And we see in this story, unfortunately, we see the all-too-human side of Gideon. It's a repeated pattern. As I said last week, uh, the book of Judges is, is a strange and brutal book to read through. And these heroes in here, they, they all do incredible acts, but there's some kind of Achilles heel they have where they just crash and burn over and over and over. For instance, Gideon leads the Israelites into victory, but after the battle slaughters two Israelite towns who didn't want to help him chase down the remaining Midianites. He comes back and kills them all. Later, he ends up with all these wives and concubines, and he has 70 sons, all of whom kill each other in a power grab after he's dead. So maybe not the greatest family man. I don't know what's going on here. At one one place it says he takes that 40 pounds of gold. They all wanted to give him gold. It was 40 pounds. And he took it and he turned it into this breastplate. It was kind of a, they call it an ephod. It's this holy golden breastplate like uh, priests would wear. He turns it into this ephod. And all of Israel starts worshiping it as an idol. They go right back to idolatry all over again. It's like the, for, for a split second, Israel's like, yay, God is cool. Ooh, that's pretty, right? It's this frustrating pattern of ju judges. It repeats itself over and over and over again. But, but the story of Gideon, it offers us some incredible lessons that I want to make sure we capture here today. I want to look at a few of these. Number one, God doesn't call the equipped. He, call, he equips the called. God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. I've got this little slogan. Uh, if you come hang out in my office with me. I've got it taped above my desk. I've had it there for 18 years since I, my first day in ministry. I've, I've always had it there because that's meant so much to me, that God doesn't call the people who have it all together, who have all the natural talents and, and, and know everything and got it doing everything just right, but he is faithful to equip those people he calls. And Gideon proves that God does not necessarily look for perfect, holy well-adjusted people, right? 
He doesn't look for people, that, those people to do his will. Because let's face it, underneath the first you know, few layers, most of us have a lot of work that we need God to do on us. Amen. Am I right? Anybody but me? Underneath the first few layers, we've got some work that we need God to do. But what God is looking for isn't perfection. It is obedience. He's looking for obedience. That is a person of faith. Someone who's able to say, God, I know I'm not all that. I know you could do better. But I'm willing to do what you've called me to do. I'm willing to do what you've called me to do. God doesn't equip. He doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And side note, if you're a follower of Christ, you've been called. If you're wondering, am I called? Yes. If you're a follower of Christ, you have been called. And so he is faithful to equip you to do what he's called you to do. Now, here's another thing that we want to keep in mind as we're reading these stories. The big, another big difference between Gideon and you is that you have not been called to destroy your enemies, but to love them. Amen. We're under a whole different covenant friends. You have been called to love your enemies. You have not been called to conquer territory, but to win hearts. And the only way to accomplish this is not to go into battle with a sword or a shield or a gun or a bunch of really clever airtight arguments or your thumb on the Twitter trigger. No, but to step out in faith with God's love radiating out from inside you. That's how we do it. That's how we go into our battle. Gideon provides some amazing lessons for us. He, he is, he's born to a paganized family, right? He had a lot of things stacked against him. He has some messed up theology. He, he's got some pretty questionable character traits that we see. That was his legacy, but God sees someone of faith and obedience he can use. That's what God sees. So I don't know what, you know, what kind of baggage you're carrying into this journey, whatever step of the journey you're at, your journey of faith, but God knows your heart. God knows your heart. And if you are choosing to move forward with him, God has infinite grace and infinite mercy for you. Isn't that good? God says, what do you need from me? I want to supply it. I, I want you to succeed. I really do. He's not here to kick you when you're down. He's not trying to set you up for failure. Now, don't use your past issues, your weaknesses, as an excuse, because I'll say it again, God knows your heart. He knows your heart. See, so you, you know, we can't lie to him. Um, he knows if you're just being lazy to say, well, you know what, God loves me just as I am, so I don't need to really grow up or mature. I'm not going to consider God my heavenly father so much as my heavenly grandfather, right? He, I, I, I bet God just considers my sin adorable, right? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. I think our sin breaks his heart. He is not just looking up there, looking from up there and going, well, look at that. What a little scamp. What a scallywag, <laughs> right? <laughs> Oh, gosh. No. He actually loves you, and he wants you to be free. He wants you to be complete. He wants, he wants us to grow into the human beings that he created us to be. He knows what you're capable of. He knows your heart. He doesn't want to set you up to fail. He wants you to succeed. And he wants to give you the grace and the forgiveness 
and the encouragement to move forward, to become what He's designed you to be. Those who God calls, He also equips. He will equip you. All right, number two, God has always made His will clear to you. That's a bold statement. I know some of you are going to go, no, He hasn't. Yes, He has. He has. In fact, I would say when it comes to 99% of your life, your week, the decisions you've got to make, there's only two reasons why His will isn't clear to you. Number one, He's made it clear to you, but you haven't read it. It's not God's fault. Or number two, He doesn't have an opinion about it one way or the other. Do we ever consider that? Right? In other words, God, should I take this job or do that other thing? God, give me a sign. Give me a sign. Help me discern. If there's no response to that, sometimes it's because God's saying, I have no response to that. When you look at things from a biblical point of view, God has a very, if God has a very specific will for you, a very specific choice that he wants you to make, you know what? He knows where you live. He knows where you live. He knows your address, and he doesn't take any pleasure in you being confused about it. He's not trying to hide his will from you. If he has a specific choice for you to make, he knows where you live. He's got your address. He's going to let you know. Otherwise, what does he want us to do? He wants us to make wise choices based on what we know, and then we'll always be heading towards his will, right? See, God has let us know in Scripture what his will is. And if it's something more specific than what the Bible says, he's going to let us know personally. That is the pattern of Scripture. That's the pattern we see in the Bible. And if he doesn't, what he wants you to do is get to know the principles of his word and then make wise and discerning choices with your life that reflect his heart. And that's what makes a father happy, isn't it? To see his kids growing up and making choices, choices that reflect his heart based on how they've been raised. Doesn't that give a father joy or a mother, right? In Christian circles, you know, we, we, we talked about kind of the cliche of the open and closed doors. We often also obsess over the wrong things. We create this, uh, what I think of as the hierarchy of priorities. And it might look like this on your screen. So usually at the top of this hierarchy or pyramid of of priorities. It's these big single choices that we, we, you know, we think of that change the whole course of our life. These are the big, big things. For instance, who am I going to marry? Now, you know, usually we we hope to only do that once. You know, that next person we marry, we hope they're the the last and only one, right? Uh, So who's that special person going to be? And then maybe career. We hope we don't have to change careers too many times. We want to find one that's really fulfilling and, and just, uh, you know, we might need to switch careers at some point in our life. That's okay. But hopefully we're not bouncing from job to job for the rest of our lives. We want to find that vocation that satisfies us and fulfills us. In order to have that career, we've got to have the right education. So, you know, what education do I need? Where should I go? What should I major in? So we want God to tell us that. And then those major purchases, you know, where should I move? Should we buy? Should we rent? What about that car I want to buy? That, and then get that car. And then way down our typical priority list are the things that are kind of underground as far as our consciousness. They're, they're subconscious. 
those thousand and one choices, attitudes, and actions that we make every single day. We're not really freaked out about those. It's the big ones that we're like, God, give me a sign. I'm going to lay out a fleece. Tell me your will. May I suggest this morning the biblical view on all this? What if we just take this list and we turn it upside down? See, from a biblical pyramid, a biblical perspective, this, this pyramid is upside down. Our hierarchy of priorities, it goes the other way. So what we would think of as the lowest level of all, the unimportant decisions, those thousand and one decisions that you make every day, your choices, attitudes, and actions, uh, those are the things the Bible says are actually the most important things you do. And if you're making the right decisions, if you, you're making the right you're, you're discerning the right, wise choices in all of these areas, you know what that's going to do? That's going to trickle down into you making and discerning the wise choices when it comes to those things that we think of are the really important stuff. So what is God's will for those thousand and one choices, attitudes, and actions that we do every day? What's God's will? Well, how about this? Here we go. He tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you. I didn't make that up. There he goes. This is God's will for you. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks. So now we know what God's will is, right? So when you nail this, when you're making the choice to walk in joy, to stay prayerfully connected with God throughout your day, and you're giving thanks in the midst of all things, when you've nailed that, well, then maybe we can ask for more, right? But why don't we start with the basic instructions that he's given us? Micah chapter 6 tells us God has already shown you what he wants you to do, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That means, okay, we're going to act justly. That, that's, that's talking about making justice a value of our life, looking out for those who are being treated unjustly. But also, what does it tell us? Love mercy. Do you realize that's a counterpoint to that first one? Love mercy. So we're being gracious. So justice for the oppressed, but mercy for the people with flaws. And how do you accomplish this seemingly impossible thing? by walking humbly, by keeping in mind that God has shown you mercy. He has shown me you grace. Most of us, guys, most of us would be forced into some serious life change if we just stopped and followed the scripture right here. If just for the rest of 2020, we just threw this on the screen and repeated this over and over. This is serious life change right here, and it's been staring us in the face. God's will has always been made plain to us. Hebrews 13.5 tells us, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Be content with what you have. Be say, say that with me. Be content with what you have. But Scott, my, my favorite self-help guru, says that to really be a success in life, I need to continually envision all of the, the wealth and the riches that I don't have so that I will be discontent enough to strive for more success. You could do that. Let me know how that works out on your last day on earth. 
how that feels, how satisfying that was. Or we could refocus our gaze on something better. Maybe God knows what's best for us. We could refocus our gaze on being a blessing to other people because Scripture warns us over and over and over that being discontent and always wanting more is death for your spiritual life. Death for your spiritual life. The Bible tells us more. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says, shun youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So here Paul tells us to, to turn from, you know, our juvenile obsessions and point ourselves toward things of, of God's kingdom. And he tells us another important point, to surround ourselves with other people who are pursuing the heart of God. Now, why is that important? Because those are the folks, the people you surround yourself with are the folks who are going to be influencing you and advising you when you go to them for advice, when you have a decision to make. So surround yourself with people who are seeking the heart of God. And if you're living in these ways, when it comes time to figure out, who should I marry? What should my career be? God will be able to say, you know what? You're so surrounded by wisdom and wise choices. You've been living your life so in pursuit of my heart. Just pick whatever you want because I trust you like a good father would. God says, you've been honoring me. Now make a decision out of wisdom, out of wisdom. So instead of just doing what the Bible tells us to do in the most important everyday moments in our lives, when the big choices come and we say, God, give me a sign, I'm going to lay out that fleece. But again, laying out a fleece, that's what Gideon did because he didn't really know the God he was talking to. Remember, he grew up with pagan gods. He laid out a fleece because he didn't really know God. God wants us to have an intimate relationship with him so that when he speaks, we trust him, that we know his voice, that we trust him, and he'll in turn trust us to use godly wisdom in our decision-making. And by the way, when it, speaking of wisdom, we would do well to heed the very next verse Paul says, don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments because they produce quarrels. I'm just going to let that hang in the air. Let it speak for itself. Hallelujah. Okay. Let, let me land this plane with this final thought. Rather than trying to use signs and tricks and magic and Christian sorcery, in the name of Jesus, to try to get God to show us what to do. Rest in the knowledge that if God wants you to do something that is specific for you, that is a specific thing, He will let you know. He will. Either through the leading of the Holy Spirit within you, or He can let you know through the wise counsel of other Christians who might be more mature, more further down the road in that area than you are. Many times I have, I've felt God leading me through his, Holy, through his Holy Spirit inside me, and many times I've received God's direction 
and the nudge that I needed through the wise counsel of people more mature further down the road than I am in that area. He leads us in that way. He's going to make it clear. You don't have to wonder or, or be worried that he's not going to make it clear, and then he's going to blame you for missing it. Ha ha, you didn't know what I said, even though I didn't really make it clear. He's told you what to do, so allow what he says in the scriptures to guide you into making wise and discerning choices. As I, as I look around the room today, I see people who have seen God do miraculous things, who've seen, one, seen him move mightily in your life, I see people who are in the midst of seeing God do something in your life right now. You're experiencing His love and His power. You're praying for God to do something. And I believe that even though, you know, sometimes it might feel like we're a bunch of underdogs, that we're way outnumbered, vastly outnumbered, God sees our potential. And He's not looking to even the odds. He's just looking for obedient people to allow him to do what he does best. If we will obey his words and dare to believe that God can use some, someone like you, someone like me, because when we all get together and we all start being those kind of people together, can you imagine what we can do with a whole church full of people who are all being obedient, who all put their faith in God? even when we don't have it all together. We don't know how it's going to happen. We don't know the next, we don't know all the steps, but, but we know that he's going to be faithful to give us the next right step. A church full of people like that is unstoppable. Unstoppable, right? He will do amazing things through us. I believe he's called us to be his warriors in the world. And, and you may have had discouraging things happen to you. You may have had discouraging words spoken to you. And I know those things cut like a knife. But I'm here to remind you, you are not who other people say you are. You are who God says you are. And if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to all of us, he calls us first and foremost, sons and daughters. Sons and daughters, hallelujah. Can we pray together? Will you bow your heads with me? <sighs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for leaving us examples like Gideon, as imperfect as he was, Lord God. We put that in the word, Lord, uh, in the Bible so that we could see this and learn from it. Gideon, who came from a difficult background, and he's doing the best with what he's got, I thank you, Lord God, that you reveal your heart through these stories. Lord, you have infinite grace, infinite mercy for us. We see that revealed even more, Lord, in the life of Jesus, who had so much mercy and so much grace for the people who were on the outside looking in. Some of us will receive that message with, with comfort and others will receive it with challenge to know. You know, Lord, what we need. May we be comforted to know that when we mess up, you're gracious to us. And yet at the same time, may we not use that as an excuse for spiritual laziness. We ask, Lord, for your Spirit's guidance and blessing. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. Praise God. And so... All my friends, those of you who are watching by live stream or maybe listening on podcasts right now, 
May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his favor toward you and grant you peace in this day that we're living in. Grace and peace. Grace and peace.